And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Tonight on PBS stations across the country, including Channel 10 in Milwaukee, a very interesting documentary is going to be airing as part of PBS's marvelous series, American Experience. This documentary is called The American Diplomat. And it tells a really intriguing story, a story uh, in a sense far more intriguing than that plain spoken title might suggest. Uh, The American Diplomat actually talks about three African-American diplomats who were in a sense among the first significant diplomats and or ambassadors for the United States at a time when that was uh, pretty much unheard of. And it's the story of their, their efforts to kind of break new ground and open up new possibilities. And uh, these are going to be names that I suspect will be unfamiliar to just about all of you. They were certainly unfamiliar names to me, but no longer unfamiliar names or forgotten names, thanks to this marvelous film. I'm so pleased to be able to uh, speak today on The Morning Show, first of all, with Leola Karzalai uh, uh, Stewart, who is the director of the film, and with uh, Dr. Michael Crenn, who is professor of history at Appalachian State University and the author of a book called Black Diplomacy, African-Americans and the State Department, 1945 to 1969. Uh, his book, uh, if I understand correctly, was a, a very significant inspiration for the creation of this film. And so I'm really excited for this opportunity uh, to talk about this really interesting film again, airing tonight on PBS. Leola, Leola Karzalai Stewart and uh, Professor Michael Crenn, we welcome both of you to the morning show. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having us. Glad we can have this conversation. Leola Karzalai Stewart, I'm going to keep practicing your name. Uh, <laughs> I want to uh, hear from you, first of all, a, a little bit about the genesis of this project. And uh, is this an idea of yours, or did someone come to you and say, this story needs to be told and you are the documentarian to help tell it. Um, well, I think it came as a convergence of things. I mean, my, my own personal experience, my husband is a black diplomat. We've been a foreign service family for uh, about 20 years now. And, you know, we often go overseas to post and we're, you know, often the only, or one of the few families of color at post. And so after so many years, you start to, you know, wonder why and want to dive deeper into um, that question. You know, at the same time, my husband had, over the course of his career, had met uh, so many incredible older Black diplomats that would tell him stories of their early years in the foreign service and how they navigated their early, the early part of their careers. And he just thought these were incredible stories that not many people knew about. And at the same time, he gave me a book called Black Diplomacy by Dr. Michael Crin, who's featured in the film. And it was a significant advisor for the project. Um, and those things together provided a jumping off point and, um, you know, dug deeper into the oral history archives of these diplomats and uh, the visual archives of the diplomats and 
you know, brought the project to my co-producers and partners at Flow State Films, Kylie Kraskowskis and Rochelle Shapiro. And we thought we should try um, with this and, you know, decided to make a film. It's a marvelous film. I learned so much watching it and I'm uh, excited that we could be talking about it today. I wonder if you could say a, a quick word about just what foreign service means, even apart from kind of the specific focus of your film, these, these important black diplomats and kind of the path that they helped to blaze for others. But even, even before we get into all of that, uh, you're in a very good position, of course, to help the rest of us understand the kind of work that diplomats do all around the world. And a lot of that work is largely unknown or misunderstood by the American public. How would you describe that kind of work that your husband and his counterparts uh, do on behalf of the United States? Well, you know, diplomats, you know, foreign service officers, they think uh, diplomacy itself is just not many people really understand it. It's such a behind the, the scenes job. And um, what people do imagine is sort of cocktail parties and, you know, ambassador, you know, ambassadors and, but, you know, ambassadors are, are the high level representatives, but there's a whole cadre of people that are working in embassies that support the ambassador's work. And um, that is, you know, like my husband who works in public diplomacy, he does cultural affairs programming. So when we go overseas, he creates, you know, speaking series, visitor series. He brings Americans to the countries that we're in to, to do work on projects or, you know, um, you know, do, you know, screenings or, you know, just cultural programming that kind of builds cultural bridges between the host country and the United States. They're um, consular officers. That's part of the foreign service where you do visa work. Um, and help American citizens who are overseas. There's political work where you have foreign service officers that are interacting with um, political counterparts uh, of the host government, economic work. Um, you have the management of an embassy. There are management officers that are diplomats that you know, focus on the, the actual running of embassies and consulates worldwide. So there's a variety of work in the foreign service. Um, that not many people know about. Right. And it's interesting. So you, you have been the wife of a diplomat. And it's interesting that at least a couple of wives of, of the three gentlemen that your film focuses upon are in this film and telling their own stories. And, uh, and, and one thing that one gets the sense that, that the spouse plays a very important role, even if perhaps in many cases it's an unofficial role. But what kind of contribution did you end up making to, for instance, your husband's work and the work uh, that, that, that he was doing? Well, you know, I, I think when you're a foreign service family, it's sort of a, a diplomacy is some of a, a family project. I mean, it's your family that's, you know, picking up and moving around the world with you to these different posts and providing that support that um, you need to be able to land in a country and then go to work in a couple of days. Um, so, you know, there, there's that element and, um, 
you know, with Doris Todman, who was in the film, she was Ambassador Terrence Todman's um, wife and partner. And, you know, they had a 40 some year career um, doing the work of diplomacy at a time, especially early in his career, where the wives were not only an integral part of the process in terms of that, um, that everyday support, familial support, but the wives were, you know, the diplomats were graded in some ways and ranked on their wives' performances at post. And um, <laughs> so there was a lot of pressure, I think, that I don't necessarily feel today, but I think Mrs. Todman definitely felt back in the 50s and 60s when she was overseas. And, um, you know, there's only a small portion of our interview with Ms. Mrs. Todman in the film. And, you know, one part that sort of ended up on the, on the editing room floor because of time, you know, there was the moment when she was trying to unionize the wives and um, demand a payment for her um, for the work that that they were required to perform in terms of dinners and like the dressing a certain way. Um, and those efforts never, you know, took off. Um, but I thought it was so part of her personality that she, um, you know, attempted to do that. For those of you just joining us, uh, we're speaking today on The Morning Show uh, with Leola Karzalai-Stewart, who is the director of a film called The American Diplomat, which airs tonight on the PBS uh, series American Experience on Channel 10 in Milwaukee and on PBS stations all across the country. And one inspiration for this film, along with the real-life experience of Leola Karzalai-Stewart uh, in the world of foreign service, was also a, a book written by our other morning show guest today, Michael Krenn, professor of history at Appalachian State University, his book titled Black Diplomacy, African-Americans and the State Department, uh, 1945 to 1969. Professor Krenn, we're so glad that uh, you can join us uh, as well. First of all, has your uh, professional life and academic work included a lot of study of, of diplomacy in general? Is that what led you ultimately to this particular story? Yeah, I, I, my specialty has always been uh, U.S. diplomatic history, but uh, I have to admit, I came across this story serendipitously. Um, I was doing research for my second book on U.S. relations with Central America. Uh, at the Truman Library, there was a memo that was listed in one of the guides that said it talked about El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala. I said, well, I need to see this, this memo. And so I ordered it up, and to my surprise, I got this memo that was entitled uh, Outstanding Negroes and Appropriate Countries to Which They Might Be Sent as Ambassadors. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it was eye-opening. Uh, it was about a, uh, about a two-and-a-half-page uh, memo, uh, and in, in those entire two-and-a-half pages, they managed to find exactly one outstanding Negro, uh, Ralph Bunch, and they didn't find a whole lot of appropriate countries uh, to send African-American diplomats to. And I thought it was an interesting story. So I, I wrote a little research note on it. And at the end of that research note, I said, this, this is a great story. Somebody should tell it. And one of my colleagues called me up and said, well, how about you? <laughs> and so I said, well, uh, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, and that was the genesis of the book. Uh, when one studies something that's involved in, in, in this area, 
is it difficult to access information? I'm thinking about, for instance, if I can think of other facets of, for instance, the State Department, where a lot of the information that would maybe be most interesting would also be sort of under lock and key and inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking about this facet of the State Department's activities, uh, are we talking about a, 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 a fair level of openness that allowed you relatively easy access to all that you uncovered? I wouldn't say it was easy access. It, it, it was really uh, needles in, in, in a haystack sort of things. Um, the, the State Department, if you, if you want to go through their records dealing with foreign policy issues and so forth, the, the records are voluminous. Uh, but the personnel records and the debates and discussions over personnel, especially when it dealt with issues of race or gender or, or any of those kind of concerns, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult to find them. Uh, it wasn't until very late in my research that I found uh, what turned out to be a, a, a treasure trove of records about personnel issues and minority hirings, uh, which was basically just on the verge of being thrown away because, oh, well, no one was really using those records. Uh, so, um, so, so a lot of the information that I, I relied on uh, came from uh, a number of the African-American diplomats themselves. A number of them were very generous with their time, their own documents, their own papers, their oral histories. Um, but no, it was, uh, it, it was a, a mining operation uh, to find uh, relevant documents dealing with the, the topic. Leola uh, Kazali-Stewart, your husband uh, was and or is a, a diplomat and African-American, and he's the one who showed you Professor Kren's book. Uh, how much did he know about this story uh, apart from Professor Kren's book? Uh, I, I'm just curious. Not very much. I mean, I, I think that's what... Um has been also just sort of a surprising part of the film's process is how very little people know this history. But my husband, when he first came into the Foreign Service, um, which was almost directly after grad school, you know, he, as I said, had met older Black diplomats who would talk about their, their time but like the, the deep history that's in, in Black diplomacy, he didn't, he didn't know, you know, and not many people do mm. to this day, I think, in the foreign service. Yeah. Which underscores even more the importance of this, of this film. Professor Kren, for how long was the, I don't know, we call it the diplomatic core of the United States uh, entirely white? I mean, in fact, at one point, I think in the film, they're described, generally speaking, as pale, male, and Yale. Uh, that's a, a sort of a shortcut way to describe who our diplomats by and large were. They were all right. men, they were all white, they were all you know, of, of a certain background. Uh, right. How long was that the case and how complete was that? Uh, I mean, are we talking about no African-Americans whatsoever for quite a long time? Oh, no, no. Uh, the, the, uh, prior, prior to the, the Civil War and Reconstruction, there, there were no African-American diplomats. But after the Civil War uh, and during the Reconstruction period, there were a handful of African-Americans who were a pl- a political appointees, uh, generally speaking, Republican presidents uh, selecting an African-American to serve in, in Haiti uh, or, or elsewhere. 
Um, you had uh, Ebenezer Bassett, Bassett, who was generally acknowledged as the first African-American diplomat in, in 1869. Uh, and you had uh, some very notable characters, such as Frederick Douglass, uh, who was selected for diplomatic service later in the, the, uh, the 19th century. Uh, but they were very few, very far between, um, uh, fairly restricted uh, in some ways in terms of their appointments. Um, and then 1924 came along with the Rogers Act, which set up the Foreign Service, and that was supposed to set up a, a more democratic system. It was supposed to set up a merit system. People would have to take an exam. They would be judged entirely on their merits, and that would determine who got appointed. Um, and uh, Clifton Wharton uh, was the first African-American to take the Foreign Service exam and pass it in, in 1924. Um, and uh, almost immediately, the State Department realized that it had made a mistake. Uh, the State Department started firing off memos about how can we make sure that there are no more African-American diplomats? How can we make sure there are no women diplomats? Uh, how can we make sure that naturalized citizens don't become diplomats? Um, and so from 1924, 25 on to the time where my book uh, picks up, the very few small, the very small handful of African Americans who actually made it into the foreign service got trapped in what was known as the Negro circuit. Mm. In other words, they were sent to Liberia, went to uh, the Azores, went to uh, uh, Canary Islands, went to Madagascar, and then back to Liberia, and that was their career. So, where we start to see some movement on this is, is where your film literally begins in the fall of. 1948 and uh this is of course during uh the term of of president harry s truman explain what was going on um with president truman i mean first of all in a sense who he was and what was important to him and and also in particular kind of the political circumstances that perhaps perhaps galvanized him to uh, take some meaningful action uh in this regard Would that be for me or Dr. Well, Dr. Uh, Quinn, why don't you go for it? <laughs> well, well uh, Truman's relationship with civil rights was always, um, um, it was always a, a somewhat confusing and, and muddled one. I think on the one hand, he certainly felt uh, the outrage that, that a number of people felt in the years after World War II, especially the, the violence that was perpetrated uh, sometimes on African-American veterans coming back from the war and, and, and the beatings, uh, uh, sometimes the killings uh, that took place. Um, but he was also very well aware, and many of his advisors were aware, that this was uh, becoming an international issue for us. Uh, the Cold War was starting to heat up. Uh, the Soviets and uh, other enemies of the United States were, were using this issue. And they didn't have to look very far for it. It didn't have to be propaganda. They weren't making up the, the civil rights issue. They weren't making up the race problem. All they had to do was look at the front pages of the New York Times and find these horrible stories. And, and that was having an impact, uh, uh, not only with our enemies using it as propaganda, but with a lot of other nations sort of wondering about the leadership of the United States if it treats so many of its own citizens as second-class citizens. And... Uh, and so I, I think that did push his administration to start considering this idea 
a little more deeply uh, that it wasn't just a domestic issue anymore. This was becoming an international embarrassment. And one way to cope with that was that memo that I mentioned, trying to find African-American diplomats to send around the world to try and counter this perception of the United States. Hmm. By the way, I'm curious uh, if you think, and I don't know how much you've, you've studied this, but if this matter, in fact, in actuality, did have the negative impact that it was feared. I mean, clearly, there was widespread fear among certain American leaders that our reputation was being badly damaged and that our standing in the world was being hurt and and uh, certain certain nations would not look to us to our to following our example because of this blemish on who we are. I mean, that was the fear. Was that fear well-founded? I mean, do we know very much about, or is that in a sense documented, that in fact, this blemish on our national profile did have this negative uh, effect on our standing in the world? Um, I, th I think that the, there certainly is documentation to that effect. Uh, every, every public opinion poll was taken by US officials during the 40s into the 1950s indicated that race relations was the, the absolute worst aspect of American life uh, as described by foreigners. Certainly the Soviets had a field day with this. Um, uh, for example, in the UN, you would have re Soviet representatives that get up and answer these speeches from US representatives talking about these, these horribly unfair elections in Eastern Europe. And the Russian representative would get up and say, really? Well, how many African-Americans voted in South Carolina this year? How many African-Americans voted in Georgia this year? Um, and, and keep in mind, the 1940s and 50s, that's the period where these colonial empires are starting to fall apart. So you're going to have more nations of people of color in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere taking a place on the world stage. And they took this very seriously. Uh, they, they they took this idea very very seriously about and and about yeah. which path are we going to follow which nation will we emulate will it be the soviet union or will it be the united states will i'll say also just quickly too that um in mary dudziak's cold war civil rights she really details especially during the little rock crisis um that this was the state department was very concerned about this i mean she has quotes from cable traffic that was going through the State Department covering, um, you know, issues of, you know, international press coverage in the, in the cities, in the countries that these diplomats were in. And the number one thing was people are, have their eyes on the U.S. in terms of race relations. And when you're asking a country like India to, um, you know, uh, come onto the side of the U.S. in this Cold War, um, it, it, you're on shaky ground when you're, you know, when you are questions of democracy, you're the legit, you're, you're, um, your legitimacy is being questioned on issues of democracy and equality. One of the things your film outlines for us is the, the, uh, the tough re-election fight uh, facing Harry S. Truman in 1948. Uh, and so some of these steps which he took uh, were designed in part to widen his base of support, although 
the risk, of course, the political risk he took was that he was probably cutting off other facets of his uh, support uh, from people who would not welcome the news of, for instance, the military being desegregated and uh, and, and other steps that uh, Harry S. Uh, Truman took. Um, ultimately, I mean, your film doesn't spend a whole lot of time on this, but I just wonder, having studied this, how much, you know, it, that strikes you as kind of a, a, a tough spot in which Harry Truman found himself in terms of trying to make these moves that were quite dramatic and yet trying to do them in such a way that he wouldn't lose too much support. It seems to me he had some very difficult political calculating to do in addition to just trying to follow what he felt was morally right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, he was, I don't think anybody, no one expected him to win um, the, the election. And, you know, he um, tried to make connections with the black community at the time as well, black leadership um, in advance of the election. And I, I think that was part of his calculus as well, uh, you know, as well, as you said, as being going through this, this moment of, um, you know, reckoning, I think, with the, uh, with the current state of, of racial violence in the United States. But no one thought he was going to win. And Edward R. Dudley was also someone who didn't think Truman was going to win. And so when he and his wife accepted the post, it's a great moment in his oral history where he's like, you know, I thought we were only going to be there for a few months, five months, and we ended up being there for, for five years. So um, yeah, it was a surprise, I think, for many people. So I, I did want to bring up the, the, the first of, of three really significant figures who are, are, are prominently featured uh, in your film, and uh, namely this uh, Edward R. Dudley. This is a name I knew not at all before watching your film, and I'm so glad now to know something uh, about his, his story. Um, I don't know who wants to take this, but uh, one of you should summarize for our listeners who Edward uh, R. Dudley was and kind of his interesting pathway uh, that ultimately led him to, uh, to, this, uh, to a position with the NAACP and ultimately to being appointed to this position in Liberia. Uh, well, I can start it. I mean, Edward R. Dudley was um, a, a lawyer. Um, he had an interesting early career. Um, he was a school teacher. He went to New York. He, um, I think he studied dentistry for a year at, at Howard University. He went to New York and um, worked in, in the theater for a bit as a stage manager and eventually, you know, found himself at law school, decided he wanted to go into law and went to St. John's University um, and, you know, eventually joined Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, worked with Thurgood Marshall on a variety of cases. There's actually a wonderful piece on the American Experience website now about Edward R. Dudley's career with the NAACP and the work that he did with Thurgood Marshall. Um, and that's how he came to the attention of uh, President Truman um, when they were looking for representatives to, to, for the post in, in Liberia. Professor Kren, uh, explain to our listeners why, for instance, uh, a diplomatic position in a nation like Liberia mattered. I mean, I think at a careless glance, 
uh, one might assume that Liberia is no big deal, a small nation, probably not very wealthy, probably not very influential on the world stage as a whole. Um, and yet clearly uh, it did matter a lot more than a lot of us would ever assume. Can you explain the significance of, of Liberia and for that matter, other African nations at this point in time? Sure. Um, well, uh, prior to this time, Liberia had been, in, in some ways, the, 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 the dumping ground for African-American diplomats. That's where they went was to Liberia. And it was designated as a, as a hardship post in, in terms of service. But coming out of World War II, Liberia did acquire uh, a great deal more interest for the United States. There were economic interests. The Firestone Rubber uh, uh, had their uh, uh, their interest there, and that was a that was a massive commitment of American economic resources. Uh, American trade was growing with Liberia. Um, we also looked at Liberia as being a showplace. Uh, for what the United States could do for Africa. Now, as it became apparent that in the coming years, the colonial empires were going to collapse, the United States was going to be faced with these independent African nations. And Liberia was a place where we could show with our economic aid, with our military aid, with our, our political power, what we could do uh, for particular nations. And, uh, and of course, that turned out to be one of Edward Dudley's uh, uh, certainly what he considered the crowning, uh, the, the, the jewel in the crown for his accomplishments there was getting the 0.4 technical and economic uh, aid program set up in Liberia uh, to create that, uh, that, that uh, uh, vision of what the United States could do for African nations. So, yeah, it, it acquired a tremendous, uh, tremendous increase in significance. Tell us more about this 0.4 program and the way that that played out, I mean, for instance, in, in Liberia? Well, the, the, the Point Four program was announced by Truman, um, and what it was supposed to do was provide scientific, technical, economic assistance specifically for underdeveloped nations. Uh, we already had, of course, plant like the Marshall Plan and those sorts of things for Western Europe. Uh, but for the rest of the world, uh, United States foreign aid and those sorts of things were, were very limited. And so the, the purpose of Point Four was to use the scientific, technological, and economic power of the United States uh, to help these nations develop, to help them modernize. That was the term that was used again and again, uh, to get over the hump from their colonial backgrounds or their backgrounds of poverty uh, to try and develop uh, economic interest in those countries, to try and help them develop um, infrastructure. And that was very important for the uh, Point Four program in Liberia was, was uh, building that infrastructure, roads and uh, the waterways and dock systems and railroad systems and communication systems, all part of that effort to, to modernize uh, these nations. Um, and so, yeah, the, the program resulted in, in hundreds of millions of dollars uh, being poured into to nations around the world uh, all the way through the 1940s and in the 1950s. It is, of course, while uh, uh, Mr. Dudley is working in Liberia that, if I understand correctly, that's when he first really comes to understand this thing we've already mentioned in the interview called the Negro Circuit, that is this matrix that was so restrictive in terms of the opportunities that would be given to black dip diplomats where they could be uh, appointed. 
I mean, the typical diplomat, I suppose, who was white, uh, might see all kinds of wonderful places all around the world. And that would not be the experience of, of black, black diplomats at the time. In fact, Leola Karzalai Car Stewart, there's a neat moment in the film where you show us some kind of a graphic from some paperwork that shows, kind of compares side by side the appointments of, of white diplomats versus black diplomats. Explain to our listeners what that documentation uh, very clearly demonstrates. Well, that documentation was um, a memo, a, a research memo, really, that uh, Ambassador Dudley and his team put together to provide the data, I guess, in some ways, of uh, the reality for Black diplomats during that time. And what you see is that of the, the Black diplomats um, that have been in the service, they're only at a handful of posts. It's the it's Madagascar, it's Liberia, it's Haiti, the Azores, um, and they're they're cycled through that post those posts. So you see visually see this table that he's created that is um, in the in the memo, and then um, on another page, what you know they've done is create a, a comparable list of of. Foreign service, white foreign service officers at the time, which is a much longer list. Um, and you see that they've been rotated through three, four, or five posts that are all over the world. And so you see it's, you know, Rome, you see it's, you know, places in, in Central America, South America, Europe, um, you know, just everywhere, Asia. And, you know, the the role or the, the process in the foreign service is that foreign service officers are supposed to change post every two to three years, and it's supposed to be worldwide. Um, but that's not what Black diplomats were experiencing then. They were it's in direct violation, actually, of, of the law and, and what is required. So they were very limited professionally um, because of the fact that they were stuck and cycled through this, this, um, this circuit. And, you know, eventually, you know, Edward R. Dudley tells the story of how he, he knew what to do with this memo when he has a meeting and um, he quietly uses that information to try to enact some change and um, is able to get uh, some people that were in Liberia at that time out of the Negro circuit. They, um, you know, two foreign service officers are able to, for the first time, serve in Paris and in, in Zurich and Switzerland. And a stenographer who was part of the State Department support staff, a woman, uh, by the name of Beatrice Carson's able to um, go to Rome. So it's, you know, it's a blow, I think, that they're able to make against the, the Negro circuit and start opening that door just a, a little to, to help, um, you know, improve the professional um, growth of, of Black diplomats during that time. Uh, Professor Kren, things get difficult, it seems, according to the film, uh, when President Truman is succeeded by President Eisenhower, who uh, either he and or his some of his closest advisors did not seem to share some of the same concerns or have the same attitude about this. And at that same time, of course, we have the rise of Senator McCarthy and the whole communist scare. 
explain how that impacts the the standing of of black diplomats and the kind of opportunities that are given to them during uh, the early to mid 1950s. Yeah, yeah, that, that's an interesting part of, of the story. Uh, I, I think that uh, Leola's film tells is. The State Department had, had always relied on talking about, well, issues of quality. That's why we don't have more minorities. We don't have more women. Uh, or that other nations don't want them. Uh, but as those barriers started to be broken down with the destruction of the, the virtual destruction of the Negro circuit, um, during the Eisenhower administration, you really saw something interesting happening where they started to rely on these issues of, of essentially loyalty. Uh, what what is really American? What is un-American? Um, and that came through crystal clear when uh, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and his advisors were talking about trying to find an African American representative uh, for the UN, uh, the U.S. team at the UN. And Dulles just dismissed it out of hand and said, uh, uh, "There's there's not a single Negro, not even Ralph Bunch, who could make it through our security check, Lily White." because all of their organizations have been infiltrated to some extent or another. And, and that goes back to what you were talking about with uh, uh, McCarthy and the Red Scare, this idea that uh, any of these organizations that, uh, that, that seem to be radical or too liberal were instantly painted with that, that brush of being pro-communist. And so that became another rationale that African-Americans, because of their involvement in civil rights, ironically enough, were now not American enough. Fascinating. So frustrating uh, to, to hear about that. Stepping into the fray at this uh, critical moment is uh, uh, a, a, a new figure uh, who uh, really makes uh, quite a difference. Uh, uh, his name, Terrence Todman, and another name that is not going to resonate with uh, very many people at all but someone whose story we really need to know. Leola uh, Karzalai-Stewart, uh, summarize his background and what ultimately took him uh, into the diplomatic corps. So Terrence Todman is originally from the U.S. Virgin Islands and, um, you know, grew up in a, you know, from very humble beginnings. Um, he eventually gets drafted into the army and uh, goes overseas to Japan where he learns Japanese. And so there begins also this facility with languages with Terrence Todman. And while he's in Japan, he really uses his time to connect with the Japanese community, which is something that I, I don't think he saw other um, officers really doing at that time. And he would, you know, as he says, you know, try to dispel some myths the Japanese had about Americans and also dispel some of the myths Americans had about Jap the Japanese and um, try to build these cultural bridges. And at that point, realize that maybe this is a career for him. Maybe this is where he can, um, you know, really add value. And if he could do this in the military, he could also do this in diplomacy and decided to pursue a career in diplomacy. Hmm. Professor Kren, uh, the, the film tells us a, a, a great story about uh, uh, Terrence Todman uh, and the sort of troublemaker <laughs> uh, 
he eventually was uh, sort of uh, believed to be by some who didn't appreciate some of his uh, his efforts. Uh, ex explain what this story is all about. Well, uh, uh, Todman's reception at the Department of State was not a warm one to begin with. Uh, he was told almost immediately that because of his accent, uh, that uh, because of the way he spoke, uh, he couldn't really be an American representative because he wasn't 100% American. And so he, he immediately had to fight against that. He had to fight again, fight to get a role in the Department of State. But what really caught, uh, caught my eye when I, when I interviewed him was he, he talked about an event in 1957. Uh, he was going to have his first overseas assignment. And so necessarily he is uh, sent over to the Foreign Service Institute over in Virginia for his training. And he discovered to his dismay that there, there, were, there was no lunchroom there. There was no, there was no cafeteria to eat at the Foreign Service Institute. So all, everyone was going across the street to this restaurant. But he couldn't go to that restaurant because it's in Virginia. Segregation laws are very, very strong. And so he is not allowed in, in the restaurant. And he brought this to the attention of the Department of State. And they said, well, you know, people have just sort of put up with that. And Todman very bluntly stated, well, that may be fine for them, but I'm not putting up with it. And you are going to do something about it. And he kept hammering away at it until finally the department leased a part of that restaurant uh, across the, the, the way and set up a, a divider through the restaurant so that there was a, a segregated part where you know, we still had segregation, but for the Department of State Foreign Service people, there would be uh, an unintegrated lunchroom. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was where he concluded in the, uh, uh, in the, the interview with me. So I, was a, I guess I was a troublemaker, but that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great story. And again, uh, sad that so few of us know this important story. Uh, finally, um, we, mm -hmm, can I just quickly say something too? There was actually a very beautiful ceremony that happened um, uh, just last week. Uh, there was a panel at the State Department celebrating the life and legacy of, of Ambassador Todman. And later that day, um, that and Dr. Crenn was there actually. Um, they renamed the. Um, the State Department's uh, dining room cafeteria in honor of Terrence Todman and in honor of his efforts to, um, you know, change the institution and, and, you know, change those eating facilities for Black diplomats. So, and, you know, the Secretary of State was there. So it was, you know, just a great moment to, to recognize this history and this contribution. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh in our closing couple of minutes, we need to uh, talk about one Carl Rowan who comes to uh, prominence in the 1960s, uh, first during the term of, of uh, John F. Kennedy and then his successor, of course, uh, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And he, in a sense, takes uh, this story into a slightly different pocket, uh, into a slightly different facet of, of, of the uh, diplomatic corps. Professor Kren, tell us about the significance of Carl Rowan. Well, Carl Rowan, an interesting story, he starts out as a journalist, uh, and that brought him to the attention of the Department of State. And during the 1950s, he was sent uh, on a couple of speaking tours abroad into India, for example, uh, to uh, uh, talk about America, and uh, of course, directly to address the, the race issues in America, uh, which he often found very uncomfortable conversations. Um, 
But by the time of the 1960s, when the Kennedy administration came in, uh, he was brought in uh, first to the Department of State. Uh, he was then made an ambassador. Um, uh, but his, his time in the Department of State wasn't the happiest in many ways. He actually referred to it in his autobiography as a virtual plantation. Uh, and so uh, he, he took the opportunity uh, when uh, the, the Johnson administration came, came into office uh, after the assassination of Kennedy to take on the job of director of the USIA. In other words, the, the quote-unquote chief propagandist for the United States. And, and obviously one of the issues that he spent a lot of time confronting was the race issue. It's a great story. Um, yeah, he is a fascinating and sort of almost transitional character. Leola Karzalai Stewart, uh, what do you hope will be the most lasting impact of your film? I mean, uh, maybe another way to phrase the question is, why do you think uh, these particular stories are so important to tell right now? Um, well, I think we're at a moment in, uh, you know, current day uh, when, you know, institutions are looking internally, looking at their own history. And I think it's important to, when you're thinking about where you are, to look at where you've been and the history that brought you to this point. And so, you know, I think it's always important to examine history as a way of understanding the present. Um what I hope people take away from this film, I, I, I hope it opens up the world of diplomacy. I think it's something like, as we've discussed earlier, a job in a world that not many people understand or, her, or have been introduced to in a meaningful way. So I hope it sort of demystifies that world and, and to a certain degree. You know, I also hope that young viewers of color um, watch this and see the themselves in these stories of these individuals um, see potential um, in terms of what they can do in international public service, um, but also hopefully open the door to them to the possibility of the foreign service to understand that, um, you know, we have, a, we can add our voices to how our country is represented overseas. And um, these are the people that helped create space for us in that world. And I hope they dive a little deeper into the history and the possibilities that the Foreign Service can provide. Very well said. The mm -hmm. film, again, is The American Diplomat, and it's airing tonight on PBS stations across the country, including Channel 10 in Milwaukee. And uh, uh, the film directed by Leola Karzalai-Stewart and uh, one of the important contributors to it, uh, Michael Krenn, professor of history at Appalachian State University. And again, the title of his book is Black Diplomacy, African-Americans and the State Department, 1945 to 1969. Again, the film airing tonight is titled simply The American Diplomat. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show. I love the film and I hope many people will seek it out and learn from it as I did. Thank you for your good work and for being part of The Morning Show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.